You're listening to Retail Refined, a market scale podcast with me, Melissa Gonzalez. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Retail Refined, a market scale podcast by your host, me, Melissa Gonzalez. Also excited to share and special thanks to Feedspot for nominating us as one of the top 35 retail podcasts currently airing. Today, we have a really exciting guest. We have Ethan Chernofsky, who is the Vice President of Marketing for Placer, where he regularly works with leading media and industry organizations to provide insights and analysis on key retail trends. Prior to Placer, he was Director of Corporate Marketing at Digital Market Intelligence Leader SimilarWeb and the Vice President of Headline Media. Ethan, thanks so much for being with us today. Melissa, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah. So as we dive into the conversation, can you tell our audience a little bit more about Placer? Sure. So Placer is a location analytics and foot traffic data platform. And what that means in the simplest terms is, you know, if you think we say people vote with their feet, so we're showing you how people vote every single day to any location anywhere in the United States. And when we think about location analytics, it's it's everything about the, the movement of people at a macro level. So we're, we're, not, we're only looking at anonymized aggregate data, so there's no privacy issue. And we're trying to analyze you know, the, those patterns that can drive retail success. So uh, where are people visiting? How much time are they spending there? What's the customer journey? Where do the right demographics and true trade areas sit? And with that information, our customers from commercial real estate, retail, and beyond are, are leveraging the information to make more informed decisions. Well, I'm first of all, I'm just excited because I think traditionally yeah, the uh, the real estate industry is ripe for innovation. Um, and so I think that the in- insights that you guys provide um, is, is crucial right now. There's also so much change happening so rapidly. I mean, I'm sitting you know, in New York City um, and I think about how much real estate's evolved the retail sector in just one year. Um, so people really needing to um, understand what are the forward-looking trends, which I know we're going to get to in this conversation. Tell us more about how Placer leverages location analytics to reveal opportunities, challenges um, that you've seen um, thus far. Sure. So a, a classic example for us is, you know, trade areas. So when you're, when, you know, when I was kind of getting involved, just starting at Placer, you know, we were at Recon, one of these big commercial real estate events, and we walked past someone's booth and there was a, you know, a three, five and seven mile breakdown of their audience. And at the time, you know, you're like, okay, yeah, that's, that's interesting. And essentially what they do is they put these concentric circles around a location and say, okay, that's the, that's where my audience comes from for the average shopping center or retail location. And then when you look at our data, we have something called true trade areas, which show you not a circle, but the actual weird, amorphous, strangely shaped breakdown of where people are coming from. And something as, you know, you know, I say simple, it's obviously complicated to get to, but something as simple as that can revolutionize the way you approach retail real estate. So if I understand who that real audience is, I can make much smarter decisions based on the demographics, based on where I should channel my marketing, based on the information I can gather up to help me improve my site selection based on uh, you know, informing how I, how I avoid cannibalization and I recognize you know, opportunities and voids. 
And then, you know, obviously the data can go far beyond. It could be used for kind of competitive intelligence, understanding what's happening in my sector, benchmarking my performance against other things, uh, leveraging the information to understand when, where is a smart investment, where is a golden opportunity, and where is something I, I'm probably better off avoiding. I think one of the, the big things with the world of, of commercial real estate is that every decision costs a lot. Like there is a big investment that goes along with almost every choice you make. And so the ability to maximize the chances of success at each decision can be hugely advantageous for, for companies, both on the commercial real estate front, but also the retailers themselves. No, absolutely. I, you know, I say, even if you can get a space for free, there's always an opportunity cost, right? Opportunity cost <laughs> of time, of other things you could be investing in. Um, there's so much considerations to be making to make sure that you are positioning yourself as successfully as possible. Um, what are some of the most important shifts that you're seeing in terms of what you're seeing in uh, consumer behavior and visitation patterns over the past, gosh, I could say, it's like, what's the right <laughs> chunk of time these days? I'll say the last six months. So I think, I think there's a few that we're really fascinated by and I'll put them into two buckets. And the, the first bucket is trends that we think have are, are new and have real staying power. So one is this shift based on economic uncertainty. And so when you think about COVID beyond the obvious clear effects of, of a pandemic, there's also the impact it's had on people's livelihoods and therefore how we think about the dollars we're willing to spend. And so you'll see a shift towards, you know, off-price retail does much is doing much better in the apparel sector than a department store, for example. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, look at brands like Dollar General or Walmart or Target, all kind of value oriented within their market segments. They're all dramatically outperforming, but even you know traditional grocers. So uh, brands that can provide a lot more of our food needs at a really high, at a good cost is a really significant piece of the puzzle right now. And on the flip side, you know, sit down restaurants beyond the pandemic issues are also going to feel the impact because do we really want to spend on that meal out or should we save by, you know, going to a QSR restaurant or, you know, just doing a home cooked meal. So that's a really significant trend that we expect to have staying power. Um, one on, you know, another one that we think is going to be really massive is this move away from cities. So we have data that's showing, you know, 60% of, of the residents as of in, in October in the Upper East Side that were, you know, that were there in January. That's a massive decline in people in that segment of, of New York City. And we're seeing it across other major neighborhoods as well. And so this idea of people leaving for the suburbs is very real and it could have dramatic impacts on retail real estate. So everything from who are the new people that are gonna fill those voids within cities how do retailers adapt to this new audience coming to the suburbs? Uh, do Should retailers start having suburban locations when they had been primarily oriented towards cities? Do these suburban retailers adapt themselves to attract this new audience that's coming? There's a lot of really significant questions that are going to be asked, and it's going to have a huge impact not just on commercial or real estate, but also residential and office. And I think, you know, at, this, at the same time, when you look at a trend that might not have the same staying power, think about something like mission-driven shopping. So something we saw throughout the pandemic was people going to 
less locations, but doing more at each location. So I'll go to Walmart or Target and spend more time there. My basket size will go up, but I'll make less visits within my trip. So that hurts niche retailers, but it benefits those who can provide a really wide selection. And this isn't something we necessarily expect to outlast COVID. So if, you know, hopefully the, the pandemic comes under control in the U.S. in the coming months, that's something that could go away fairly quickly. You know, another trend that's going to be really interesting to track is this home improvement surge. So, mm-hmm. you know, yes, we're all obsessed with do-it-yourself projects and, you know, we've been stuck at home and we want to, you know, you know, <laughs> take that time to fix up the deck or redo the living room or whatever it may be. That might not last all that long once we go back to getting out and about. But at the same time, the economic ramifications are maybe it's easier for us to upgrade our home as opposed to looking to buy a new home entirely. So you're trying to understand which of these key trends impact which sectors in which ways. And the data can be a really good indication of what the prime causes are, how they're impacting different sectors and how they're impacting those sectors on a region by region basis. So the the West Coast, the East Coast are dramatically different. New York and Georgia and California and Texas are all adapting in very different ways. So analyzing those trends on a regional basis can be incredibly fascinating. No, absolutely. We do some of our survey data as well. And we're always, you know, there's the gender differences and then there's also the geographic, rural, suburban, uh, urban. Um, I think it is definitely a huge thing to think about because I think of brands that kept come to us. You've always had the big cities as the first when they wanted to rule out physical retail. And now you're seeing a significant shift in rethinking of that. Um, and also a store format in a suburban market is different, uh, different needs mm-hmm. too than, than, than urban. So it's, it's a lot to think through. Um, you guys actually put out a report, I think today, um, breaking down, um, you know, some of the insights that you're seeing across grocery, home improvement, fitness, and apparel, analyzing top brands within each category um, and who you're seeing positioned for success. Can you share a little bit about that with us? Sure. I mean, so we put out uh, new research at least three times a week on our blog at placefair.ai. And we also have this section of our site that is designed around free tools. And it's called the Square also at our site, placefair.ai. And one of the things that we launched today was a new feature called quarterly indexes, where we break down four sectors and we try to understand what happened in the last quarter and what that might tell us moving forward. So even, you know, home improvement again, even though quarter over quarter, those visits are not as high as they were at that peak in that, you know, April to June seasonal, you know, that annual time when spring cleaning, we're all focused on upgrading the home and those do-it-yourself projects. They're still more than 10% up as a sector. That's an enormous year over year increase in a time when most other retail segments are declining. And you know, another really fascinating sector for us to watch has been the fitness sector. So, mm-hmm. you know, people don't want to leave their homes and they definitely don't want to be surrounded by lots of other people who are sweating and getting too close to them. Mm-hmm. And that's not a good thing for a fitness chain that wants as many sweaty people in the room at the same time. And so this was a, a sector that we expected to, to get hit really hard. And you, there was a lot of uncertainty about when and if they would recover yet we're seeing massive quarter over quarter changes in terms of visit rates. So, you know, Planet Fitness, where some national chains were down 70, 80% year over year in Q4, Planet Fitness was down, you know, 30% or so. And that's 
an incredibly impressive number and the timing couldn't be better because Q1 is the key quarter for so many of these fitness chains. So if they can maintain that strength into this kind of new year, they could rebound much faster than many expected. And it could bode very well for an industry that might be able to tap into something very real and tangible as we all start to focus more on health and wellness. No, absolutely. I think health and wellness, um, home improvement, um, some aspects of beauty, a lot of them are pretty, they make sense, right? You, you spend more time at your house, you realize your bed doesn't feel the way it should. This thing's been broken for five <laughs> years. Let me fix that. What were some of the biggest surprises you saw? Were there any surprises categorically um, or as you think of visitation patterns over the past, you know, six to 12 months? Yeah. I mean, I think that there were is start with something that really outperformed. It's it's very easy for, for people to, you know, Monday morning quarterback and say, oh my God, Home Depot and Lowe's, obviously they did well. Everyone is going to want to do do-it-yourself projects now. But with the fact that they did well during their normal seasonal peak and they were considered essential retail, yeah, makes sense. The fact that they were still up 10 to 20% year over year throughout the year, deep into the summer and winter that's incredibly surprising. And I think a major kudos to those brands for figuring out how to take advantage of the opportunity and align themselves with a trend. I think uh, another, another one that really surprised us was Planet Fitness. I mean, we put out a piece just a few weeks ago about our 2021 winners, where we kind of give our take on who's going to have a great year. And Planet Fitness was among them. It's, it's not a given that a brand would do this well, given all of the negative obstacles they're trying to overcome. And when you think even more, again, this, this refocus on health and wellness could serve them well in the year, but also a lot of their big competitors are closing. And when a brand that has that type of reach has a value orientation, they are really well positioned to fill that vacuum. And so there is no reason that Planet Fitness might not end 2021 as one of the strongest brands even though they started off in the year in a really difficult sector with a lot of really significant obstacles ahead of them. So I think there's a lot of, a lot of players that did far better than we expected. I mean, there's also some that I think faced a unique set of challenges. So, you know, you think of Whole Foods and we were talking about them a week ago. This is a, a grocery brand, so it should do well except they're high, they have high priced items. So their, their orientation mm-hmm. is towards kind of a luxury grocery, let's call it. They're very oriented towards cities. And so while other grocers, you know, Albertsons, Publix, the like, were doing very well, you know, Whole Foods was still down 18% more late into the year. And it's, it's not that they did anything wrong. It's just, you know, we explain it. It's like being six foot three. It's an amazing thing to be six foot three, except when you're sitting coach on an airplane. And then all of a sudden it's really cramped and difficult. And so Mm -hmm. I think Whole Foods is a great brand, really, really smart. They just happen to be sitting in coach right now. And it's a really difficult environment. No, absolutely. Um, That's a good analogy. Um, So tell me, how how do you work um, with your clients to optimize decision-making in terms of figuring out where to show up? I mean, especially going forward. So I think uh, there's a few pieces to this. One is we recognize that our our job and our perspective is to focus on location data and location analytics and to be experts in this 
Uh, and, but to also recognize our boundaries, our customers, whether they're in retail or commercial real estate or, you know, investors, they understand their sectors much better than we do. And so our job is to provide them a really high quality data source to help them unpack that data source, to maybe even give them ideas, but never to suppose that we know more than they do. And I think that type of partnership is a really important element to how we, how we operate to, you know, and it, it means that every customer needs to get that personal attention and that personalized focus. And it's a, a big piece of our, our approach to kind of to how we view customer success and our, and our client relationship. I think the, the other piece of it is how do you tease ideas? So, you know, you know, even from a marketing perspective, putting out blogs, you know, writing out research, it, the, the concept is, you know, I certainly don't know retail as well as a senior executive from, you know, name your top retailer, you know, insert their name here. But if we can show a perspective on viewing the world, we think that that can tease out an idea in their head of, ooh, what if, what if we took this and apply our knowledge and expertise and we could take this into a much better direction. So it's almost like we feel there's this need for constant ideation mm -hmm. and discussion and, and conversation around ideas that could have an impact because the more you put those ideas out there, the more you're going to increase the likelihood that some really smart, innovative, experienced person in whatever field can take it and turn it into something very successful. No, absolutely. I think it's, it's, it's always um, listen, learn, iterate, right? You have to always be <laughs> learning, taking that, the, that information to inform your decisions. Um, what, are, what are some of the key trends that you see defining offline retail and real estate in 2021? Um, what, are you, what are you thinking in terms of strategies driving performance for, for some of the top retail chains um, all the way, so this would be a big question, all the way to the resiliency of malls and the rise of outdoor shopping centers? So I, I happen to be, you know, be part of the reason, you know, I'm in this space is I happen to be very bullish about what offline retail brings to the, to the table. And I think one of the things that, you know, we love to talk about e-commerce because of the growth and we have to remember that e-commerce is still a very small piece of the puzzle and that overwhelmingly people on a daily basis show that they believe offline retail is a better answer to what, to the, you know, what they're looking for. And I think when you're a top retailer to a top tier mall, it's always a question of, you know, if you're strong, how do you leverage that strength to take chances? So think Dollar General launching Pop Shelf. I mean, this is such an exciting idea of a brand saying, hey, we know that there's, we're not going to go and try to be, you know, a coach or, a, you know, an Ann mm -hmm. Taylor, but we're going to figure out what our next level up means. And is there a new audience we can reach and, and, and kind of uh, bring value to? Or, you know, Ulta driving a partnership with, with Target or Sephora coming offline with Kohl's. I mean, these are really exciting ideas that say, we're doing well and it's now, but in this position of strength, we're going to take some shots. And that's what I think great brands do. But when you, even when you think of a sector that's struggling or, you know, facing a negative narrative, like even top tier malls, there's so much opportunity. And I would argue that the situation could be brighter two to three years from now than it was two to three years ago. And mm -hmm. a big piece of that is a fundamental shift in how we're viewing these locations. So you know, we say this a lot, but you know, where I grew up, if you drove 15 minutes in one direction or 15 minutes in the other direction, you hit a mall, that mall had a Macy's or a Sears, 
and it probably both had a Macy's and a Sears. And, you know, it had the same things in the food court and the same types of other retailers in there. And it just wasn't all that interesting. And even more, it was all indirect competition. Mm-hmm. Now with the rise of direct to consumer brands, the, the shrinking or the right sizing of these footprints for a Macy's or for a JCPenney, there's an opportunity to create a much more diverse, differentiated type of mall that is no longer competing one-on-one with every other mall. It's providing something different. You can create targeted experiences focused on a specific audience that will be a real draw over time. And I think the ability to have more diversity within the shopping center and mall mix, the ability to have more more brands that have a hundred locations and more that have, uh, and what, and that kind of more diverse and exciting mix is something that's going to make the malls better. It's going to make retailers more successful and give them more options. And it's going to ultimately make the consumer happier because they're going to have lots of different types of experiences, lots of different options, and the ability to find locations that really speak to what they want. No, absolutely. I mean, that's a lot that we've been working on with our clients and smaller format is definitely a trend um, and more curated retail experiences. What do you have thoughts there? Like what, what do you think that um, the new kind of range of average size square footage looks like in the future? The truth is, I don't know if it's a size question. And the reason I say that is because I think more brands are going to shift towards asking how much they can accomplish, what, how much value they can squeeze out of a location. Mm -hmm. So if you think of, you know, if I'm, if I'm a direct to consumer brand and I'm launching my first location in the Midwest in a mall in the Chicago area, let's say, if I can have a location that I can sell products from can help my distribution, I can use to fulfill, to take in returns, to cut all those huge costs. I have a really significant advantage from that location. So it's not about necessarily shrinking size, it's about maximizing the value of each location. And I think that's something that we're gonna see more and more. And you know, you know, the other big piece of, of this puzzle is the types of brands that are coming offline or expanding offline, whether it's Nike or direct to consumer brands like Everlane or Warby Parker, these are data oriented brands. And so they're making their decisions with a a level of more uh, thoughtfulness and objectivity. And that's going to enable them to be much more sustainable, much more focused on ongoing optimization and on squeezing this value out of each location. And I think the result will be more sustainable locations. So less brands that expand really quickly and then have to shut down a lot of stores and more that expand smartly and drive success on a per location basis. Yes. I mean, I, hopefully they're, you know, they have a lot of insights of how, how people are getting to them, where they, you know, go in the funnel, where they fall off. Um, hopefully creating destinations that answer some of those pain points where they're seeing they're losing the customer online for whatever reason, albeit fit or understand fabric or, you know, every product's going to have a different uh, story need or things to be answered. Um, so I agree. I think it's going to mix for sure. Um, national brands as they look at their uh, portfolio, recognizing that not every uh, geography is created equal either. There might be some cities where a flagship makes a lot of sense and there's going to be others where it's a little bit more of a smaller format, targeted experience um, 
no pun intended, I say Target, that's a perfect example, right? They have the flagships and then in Manhattan, they have a smaller format or in colleges or right. So depending on the audience that you're serving, recognizing that there's not one answer that fits all. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think you're absolutely right. And I think, but, but what you're saying is already this, the move away from one size fits all is such a significant leap forward, you know, mm-hmm. because you have brands that are, that are recognizing that every location might need to be different. Uh, the way we approach from a merchandising perspective, the way we approach from a, re- a location size perspective, what we do in each location has, could be very, very different. And, you know, take a brand like Target, you know, they're, it's, they're gigantic, they're enormous, they're a huge big box retailer. Yet, when you look at locations, I think the one they did a report on was a one in East Lansing, Michigan, near Michigan State University. The What's on offer is fundamentally different because it's focused on college students, whereas the one that's in a suburban area with families not near a university has a very different product mix. And I think if a, if a brand of that size and that scale can be so smart and so focused, the rest of them can be too. And I think that's the model and the path forward. No, absolutely. So while we're on this, I think it's a good segue to the question, what does uh, retail real estate intelligence look like over the next three to five years? So selfishly, I hope it, it means that Playster is a part of everybody's life. But um, <laughs> no, I think I think uh, you know, I think you're going to see the the worlds converge, and there's going to be a handful of really strong players that bring together a lot of different information. And I can tell you, you know, as a player in the space, our focus is always how do we how do we squeeze more out of location data? How do we provide more analysis, more depth on top of it? Because what, you, what you're trying to create is a much faster ability for anyone with a stake in the world of offline retail to quickly get the insights and analysis they need. So that means more data sources. It means figuring out more ways to use the data sources that we have. And I, I'd say most importantly, it's focused on making it accessible. You know, I can send you a a, you know, miles long sheet of lots of numbers in an Excel, and you're not necessarily going to get that much value out of it. Whereas if I can make the data really accessible and easy to use, all of a sudden, whether you're a gigantic organization or a retailer who's just looking to open up their third or fourth location, you're going to get a lot of value. And I think those, that ability of to how do you become as robust as possible within this, this data-driven space while at the same time as accessible as possible? It's a very difficult route to navigate, but that's where the industry is heading. No, absolutely. I think accessibility and, and the assistance that you're providing and actually interpreting the data, right, which I guess falls into accessibility. But I think that that's been a gap um, for data as a whole. Um, is that yeah, interpretation mean, yeah. and what are the, what are the uh, call to action next? Like, what do you do with that? A hundred percent. I would even add that, like, you know, you said, we hear this a lot of like commercial real estate is so ripe for innovation. And the answer is, I mean, of course, but it's like, it's, it underpins everything that's happening in the world of retail. But I, I would say that our experience was very surprising as a company. Our expectation was that retail was going to be the earliest adopter and you know, that was going to be our route to being a successful business. And what we found instead was that we were immediately guided by the commercial real estate industry Mm. because there were some really smart, experienced people who said, this can change the way we operate. We're going to show you what we need 
and you build it for us. And we, I think it gave us a very clear indication very early on that partnership was really important in this sector, but even more uh, critically, the expertise that people in this industry have gained over decades is absolutely important. And even more, it is data-driven. It's just data that's hard to explain to others. And so essentially what we're trying to do is understand what are the triggers that are allowing these really experienced people to see something that they say, oh, here's an opportunity and figure out what are the data points behind it and how do we make that accessible? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that, that I mean, I enjoy <laughs> when new reports hit my inbox, I'm always reading them. Um, that contextualization is critical. Um, and I think it's, I think it's great too that that not only the real estate industry is thinking that way, but retail, like you said, right? They've they have no choice. I mean, they really need to um, lean into data, especially as we're trying to learn the new norms and um, consumer behaviors and patterns, visitation patterns, and try to forecast, you know, where where we want to kind of open doors next to to position ourselves for success. So. Um, a lot of good insights here. I, th I, th I thank you for joining us today. It was in great for the audience to learn more about Placer and, and your clear passion for what you do. So thank you for bringing that um, to today's conversation. And, you know, I think that the, the trends are, are still illuminating themselves, um, but really appreciate you sharing your insights today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was great to be here. Everyone, again, this was Ethan Tronofsky. He is the Vice President of Marketing for Placer. Thanks so much for being with us today.